You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. That was good. We've got kind of a little bit more serious flow going on, so the energy in the room is a little more focused, which is good because my energy is down a little bit. I was at camp all week with our middle schoolers this past week. I think I spent all day staring at the wall yesterday trying to stay awake, and uh, it was great. I feel good now. I'm getting there. I'm starting to wake up, which is good because I got another week at camp coming up here soon, so pray for me. That'll be relevant to today's message because I'll get to it in a moment, but this week, a lot of things have been going on in our nation and our world, and we are not going to talk about those things today. Next Sunday, uh, on the July 4th weekend, um, we're actually going to look at a psalm that talks about kind of like the prayers for your nation, and we're going to dig in a little bit there. So if you're wondering kind of where Kingsway stands on some of the things going on in the world, you just need to know we stand on Jesus, and we may not always get it right, but that's our goal, and so that's not what we're here to talk about today. But we do want to do is pray first. We're going to pray for our nation. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of backbiting and devouring, a lot of fighting, And uh, we want to pray for healing, but that only happens in the name of God. We cannot fake healing under God. It has to come unified under his name. So let's pray, and then we're going to turn our prayers to ourselves, because here's what we know. I can't change my neighbor. I can't change my coworker. I can't even change my spouse. It's a hard enough job to change me. So what I'm going to do is bring myself into the presence of God and ask him to move. Let's do that together right now. Ready? Heavenly Father, we just pause for a minute. And just like the song we just sang said, God, we're not here for blessing. You don't, Jesus, you don't owe us anything. We just want you. So God, I just pray right now in this place, there's so much that could be said about today's psalm. I just pray you would use it, God. Use it to convict us. Use it to stir our hearts. Use it to draw us near to you. Make us sensitive to the things of God, Father. And um, Lord, I pray, uh, heal our land, heal our nation. God, there's so much backbiting and devouring and fighting, but I, I believe, I really believe, if we could just come together under the name of Jesus, not ignoring hard issues, there's always gonna be hard things to figure out, even in the body of Christ. But God, if we could just come together under the name of Jesus, we would find a lot more healing, a lot more peace, a lot more unity in our land. And so God, I just pray that for us as a people Um, Lord, help us in places where our pride is in the way and we can't swallow our pride to get over our pride uh, in order to find that healing. And Father, we just love you and we thank you for this opportunity. Speak to us now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in. So uh, today we're gonna be in Psalm 51. And if you have a Bible, you wanna open it up there, it'd be great. If not, everything that I have time for will be on the screen. I ran out of time last service because I, I wanna come back and sing that song again. And so I gotta make sure I leave time for us to sing that song. And uh, so I had to cut some out. So maybe I'll talk faster, right, if that's possible. And uh, we'll get to cover some more ground today. But Psalm 51 is an important psalm. And here's why. At the very beginning, there's something called a trans, like a transcription, a summary of what's going on. We don't have this in every psalm, but in this case, we do. And so this psalm tells us the context of the psalm. And it says this, for the director of music, a psalm of David. So David wrote it and he handed it to somebody who put music to it. And then it says, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So now we know the context of what's happening here. But you may not know the context because you may not know the story. So if you'll give me an opportunity to summarize, this summary is going to take a little bit of time. I got to lay the framework so that the psalm makes sense to you. So we have David, and here is what I think, all right? So I can't necessarily prove this to you theologically, but I can tell you why I come to this conclusion. You could come to your own. 
If you were to skip ahead in the book of 2 Samuel, you'd get to chapter 21, around the verses of 15 to 17, what you would find is there's just a small paragraph blurb in there. And the blurb sounds like this. King David is at war because this is what kings do. And it was the season for that to happen. King David was at war and he got tired and he's just about to be killed. And Abishai comes up and rescues him and saves him. And then the leaders in Israel look at King David and say, oh, King David, from now on, you've got to stay home because if you don't and you die in battle, by the way, this is exactly how I felt last week. I'm in the pool, I'm playing water polo, I'm in the courts, I'm playing basketball. And when you are 29 again, and uh, you're at school with a bunch of, or at camp with a bunch of middle schoolers, and you're playing nonstop every day. What happens is I can compete with any of them for any short span of time, but it adds up over time and you just get worn out and it feels like you're going to die. Probably not the same thing, but I do get what's going on in David's life. We don't know exactly how old David is at this point, but it's important because they say from now on, when we go off to war, you stay home. Now that's at the end of 2 Samuel. And I think that's what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So it's one of those where the end of the book fills in some details about something earlier in the book, if I'm correct. Because what happens is everybody's off at war, at battle, because it's springtime. You know, you've been cooped up for the winter. What else are you gonna do? Apparently this is how it happened back then. And David stays home. And what I think what's really happening is David is feeling insecure. David, the one who killed Goliath. David, the one who killed his tens of thousands. David, the great warrior that everybody looked to. He was a general in the army. He was a bad and tough dude. You did not want to mess with David in a one-on-one fight. But David is now an older gentleman and is starting to slip a little. He's a has-been, not an is, and it's eating at him. And he looks out and sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba and he desires her. So he calls and has her brought to his bedroom where then he and she do the things that married people are supposed to do. And I'm gonna leave it at that because kids, may be listening, and she gets pregnant. And this is a problem because she's married to one of the men, the leaders in his army, a man named Uriah. And David has to figure out how to solve the problem. So his grand solution is, I'll have Uriah come back. So he sends messenger out. Bring Uriah back. Uriah comes back and he says, Uriah, you're such a good man. You're so faithful to me and honorable to the nation. Go be with your wife. Spend time with her. We'll do dinner later, whatever. And Uriah won't do it. Uriah is so faithful to David and to Israel. He says, how could I come home and enjoy the blessings of life at home like my beautiful wife whom I love and my home and all this food and drink while my men are out at war dying? I can't do that to David. I can't do that to Israel. It would be a shame on my name. But David's got a problem. He's gonna solve the fact that she's pregnant by having his look like her husband got her pregnant. So finally, when his schemes won't work, he orders Uriah to the front of the battle lines. And then he orders for the the battle lines to draw back and Uriah to be left out there alone. And sure enough, he's killed by the enemy. He's overwhelmed. And David, looking like the hero then, everybody just assumes, wow, Uriah must have done something to make David mad. That's why David ordered him home and then sent him back and then did this. Nobody knows what's really going on. And so David's got this perfect plan. He's got his trash covered. And then he says, oh, Uriah, such a great and faithful servant and warrior for Israel. And for me, he's been such a good man. I will take his lovely bride and make her one of my own. And we are not going to talk about polygamy today. We don't have time to go into that. Just know that the Bible condemns it, even though it happens. And we're gonna move on maybe someday 
Sunday. Email bcadwell at kingswaychurch.org if you have any questions. He's happy to answer all of them. Love you, Brett. And uh, what happens, though, is then David takes her in as his bride. And it looks like everything is clear. Except it's not, because God knows what David did. And God knows, and not only did he commit adultery, which is interesting, it doesn't say here after David had committed adultery and murdered her husband, but after he did all these things, God kept giving David time to repent. And David wasn't repenting. And God was being patient, but David wasn't repenting. And so finally, in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And it's a funny little story. I won't go into all the details, but basically Nathan shows up. And he's like, oh, David, we got a problem. He's like, what's the problem? He's like, there's this rich guy and he has lots of lambs and he's got some visitors coming over, but he's got this other neighbor of his and he's a poor man. He has only one little baby ewe lamb and he loves that ewe lamb so much. He takes care of it and everything. And this rich man goes and steals the ewe lamb from this poor neighbor of his, kills it and feeds it to his guests. Can you believe that? And David's enraged. This man must be punished. And Nathan goes, by the way, the man is you. And David goes, I thought we were talking about lambs. No, it's not really what he said. What's interesting is when David is confronted, he immediately confesses. It's like he knows the game is up. And then he sits down and he writes Psalm 51. But before that, I want to show you something, just one verse. There's so much we could say. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 says this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And that's great news. The implication is almost that, you know, David, if you hadn't owned it, this was your last chance. And if you hadn't owned it, it's quite possible you might have died. God's judgment over you might have been death. Part of the reason we can kind of assume that, though it's not said, is because when Saul sinned against the Lord, the, the king before David, and he would not repent, God said, I'm removing you. And he appointed David. So David is very, very well aware that God could choose to do this and David would have no say in the matter. So David, choosing not to be like Saul, even though he knows he's messed up massively, he repents. And what's interesting is Nathan looks at David in this conversation. He says some things I still to this day wrestle with, but God through Nathan looks at David and says, David, what have I not given you? Everything you've ever asked for, I've given to you. And if you had wanted more, all you needed to do was ask and I would have given it to you. What have I done that's not enough for you? And then he says, now, David, even though I'm not going to kill you, there are going to be consequences for your sin. The little baby dies. And even beyond that, he's like, the sword will never leave your home. And what we find out is, again, that whole polygamy thing, because David has multiple wives and he has multiple children. One of his sons, um, I'm going to not use the popular word because I don't want to leave parents having to explain things. One of his sons takes advantage of one of the other daughters, like his half-sister. And that creates this massive turmoil in the home where another one of his sons is angry and he decides that he's gonna take the kingdom away from David. He raises up an entire army and comes to chase his King David out of the palace and David is running for his life. The last few decades of David's ministry because of this moment are terribly painful, but he still has God. 
And so just because God forgave his sin did not remove the natural consequences that come with our choices. That's important for us because we can stand right before God, but still broken and needing to do repair work with others. And that's what happens in the story. And what it shows us is God can take our tragedies and turn them into triumphs. And you need to know that as we go through this, that God desires to take the worst of whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through and not make it the end of your story. It might be painful. There might be lessons to be learned. There might be repair work that needs to be done. I have a story in my head right now that I want to tell, but I'm not going to because I don't have the person's permission, but I have a friend just gone through some junk, some hard stuff, and he blew it. He admits he blew it. He acknowledges that he blew it, but it was all before he knew Jesus. And he said to me the other day, this powerful quote, he said, they're mad about the dead man who sinned, but that's not me anymore. But I have to stand and I have to own it and I have to take and receive whatever comes at me as a byproduct of what I did. I did it, but it's not who I am anymore. And I, that tension is something we can't lose. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you glad you got up? This gets better, I promise. Let's get into Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Verse one, David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'm not joking. This sermon could be three times as long. So there's so many things that are in my head that I want to say, we just don't have time to say them all. But I do want to hit a couple of very quick ones. Unfailing love. This is an Old Testament word, chesed, chesed. And we don't really have an English equivalent. We don't even have a Greek New Testament equivalent. It has to do with the fact that God is never changing, always faithful from beginning to end, no matter where we've gone, no matter what we've done, he never fails us. And David in Psalm 51, in spite of his largest failure in the scriptures, he's calling on that. God, I know who you are. I know your character. So no matter what I've done and where I've been, I'm calling on you to be you, to me. That's what I need right now. So forgive me, wash away my sins. But he says in verse three, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I'm well aware of what I've done, God. In fact, in another Psalm of repentance, Psalm 32, David, we don't know the context. Psalm 51, we know he's talking about Bathsheba and Uriah. Psalm 32, we don't know the context. We just have a Psalm of repentance in general and it's a great teaching for all of us. But I wanna use one little snippet of Psalm 32 to build on this. His sin is always before him because if it's talking about the same moment, you get a little bit of insight. Check this out. Psalm 32 verse three says this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And what David is trying to portray for all of us is he was hiding his sin. And while he was hiding it, he was miserable. When I was a kid, um, I would tell on myself all the time. If I did something and parents didn't know who did it or what happened, I would tell. I broke a lamp. I owned it. I put a hole through the wall because I, I grabbed a curtain rod and I swung it like it was a lightsaber. But it turns out, I was that age, but it turns out there was a, a curtain rod inside the curtain rod. It was one of those that like, I didn't know that. And when I swung it, it came flying out, went right through the wall. Uh, there was another time I was mad that I was losing a ping pong game and I kept kicking the wall behind me and I kicked a massive crack in the wall. 
uh, okay, I was a kid, right? I'm not, not proud of any of these moments, but instead of like blaming one of my friends or saying, well, I don't know who did it and just playing dumb and hoping my sister took the blame, I owned it. And this got to the point where I was in baseball as a little kid and they were doing the, you know, the trophy night and handing out trophies and it, before everybody got one. And um, they were saying like, so they were looking for things that everybody did that they could celebrate rather than just hand one out generically to everybody. And I remember the coach standing up and saying, hey, uh, this next person I want to I honor, um, I spoke to his parents and they're telling me all the time about how, how he you know, he's always telling himself and confessing things that he did almost to the point where he probably shouldn't. Everybody's laughing. I'm like, oh, I'm embarrassed, that kind of thing. He said, he does have one major problem. He really likes to steal. And it turns out I led the team in stealing that year and everybody made a joke about it, but that was me. Like, I get it. Like, I have this hyperactive conscience a lot. It drives me absolutely crazy. And when I try to hide things, it eats at me. You know what that feels like? If you don't, maybe it's because you don't have anything hidden. But if you do, maybe it's because Psalm 51 is just for you. And what David is trying to get to is this. He's sensitive to the things that offend the Lord. My challenge to you is to keep your heart sensitive to what offends the Lord. There's a passage I didn't use because it took a lot more explaining, but I'm trying to remember, I think it's in Hebrews. It talks about our consciences being seared as with a hot iron. That is not a fun analogy. But if you've ever burnt yourself on something more than once, I used to be a, a, a busboy and then a waiter. And it was not uncommon to pick up something you weren't supposed to pick up, and it was hot. So that when I had little kids, oh, here's another good analogy, drinking coffee or drinking hot drinks. And my kids will look at me and be like, how does that not burn your mouth? And I'm like, it's not hot enough, to be honest. Like, the hotter the better. Because what happens is you burn to the point where it calluses over, and then you don't feel it as much. You know what I'm talking about? And the Bible says we can actually do that with sin in our lives. And we don't deal with it, and we are, our consciences actually make peace with it. And then it's like our conscience is seared as with a hot iron so that now it could touch something seriously offensive to God and it's okay to just ignore it. Except for God desires for our consciences to be innocent and pure and cleansed so that when something is happening around us, like, man, we get, we get offended, but then we take it to him. And what I just want to encourage you, what we're seeing in Psalm 51 is David is saying, I don't want that. I want to come and I want to soften my conscience. I want to soften my heart. God, I know my sin. It eats at me. And I don't want it to just eat at me in private. I want to confess it to you. I want to take it to the place that I know it's supposed to go. I am trusting in your chesed to be enough for me. Your unfailing love will never fail me. So God, no matter what happens, just let me be restored to you. And then David says this profound thing. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned. Say, what? <laughs> like, you, you, uh, you abused your power, took advantage of a young married woman, and then killed her husband. And against God alone have you sinned. I'm thinking David doesn't understand how this works. Or we don't. What is David trying to say? I think there's two things we could take away from this. And the one I already mentioned when the prophet Nathan says to David, David, what has God not given you? And if you would have asked, he would have given you more. What more does he owe you? Again, it's one of the reasons I asked them to sing the song this morning. Nothing else, nothing else will do, right? I just want you. I didn't come here for blessing. You don't owe me anything. I just want you. And David is coming to this realization, like, Man, I could have a bigger kingdom. I could have more horses or chariots or armies or palaces. He probably would have enjoyed indoor plumbing, I'm guessing. But whatever it is, 
The reality is everything David has came from God. But also, and this is really important, it's easy to justify my sinful actions when somebody else has hurt me or offended me. It's really easy to say, well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have needed to do this. And then my response is a sinful response to maybe a sinful response. And we get really good, let's just be honest, I get really good at justifying my sinful actions in light of what others have done. And what David's doing is he's setting it all straight again and saying, God's never done anything wrong. God's never failed me, not once, not ever. So every time I sin, it's not first and foremost about another person, it's first and foremost about him. I wronged him. He was faithful. He was said. He was good to me. He was loving. He provided, and I sinned against him. And then he goes on, he says, and this is important for where we are right now as a nation. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. This is not a sermon on Roe v. Wade. I just want to continue to affirm our stance that we believe is the biblical stance, that when a baby is in the womb, in the very least, what David is saying is, God already was well aware of me. He speaks as one who is alive. And I know this raises a lot of questions that some of you may be deeply offended. In no way are we trying to offend you. We just want to affirm everything the scriptures affirm. And the reason this is important is David is saying, when I was in my mama's womb, you already knew me. You were already teaching me things in the secret place. You were already growing me. David's just affirming God's faithfulness, even in a moment where he had no ability to process. But he's saying, God, you were so aware of my situation, and I was still sinful. I was broken even then. I was going to be coming into a world in need of a savior. But this isn't a statement about his worthlessness. This is a statement about God's faithfulness. So that's why he cries out in verse seven and he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. It's whiter than snow. Remember the song, the old hymn? A couple things are powerful here. Hyssop is a branch, it's like in the mint family and it's got a strong stalk and it's got these leafy branches and um, it was used in many religious ceremonies. Hyssop was actually used as Jesus was hanging on the cross and they took some, I think it was vinegar and they offered it to him to drink. It was hyssop. Hyssop was also used in the Old Testament in the Passover ceremony. They were told to take hyssop, dip it in an innocent lamb's blood and put it over the doorpost so that when the spirit came by, if it saw the blood over the doorpost, they would have kept going. David is directly referring to this powerful moment in Israel's history and saying, in the same way that you passed over through the Passover, the Egypt, or the, sorry, the Israelites in that day, would you pass over my sin as well? There's this story in um, ancient history. It was in the first century. 
the rabbis write about it. And here's what I can tell you. I don't know much. There's only a couple of lines in some of the rabbinical writings, but it's super fascinating. And I'm going to spend some more time on this in December this year. So you'll hear a little bit now. We'll talk about it more then. And some of you are going to be, I know, because I watched people do it last service. You're going to be pulling out your Googles to see if I know what I'm talking about or how cool this is to make a note. Super cool to look up later. But there's this thing in the Bible called the Great Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, the third book in the Bible, the 16th chapter, 316. Remember that. And in that little chapter in the Bible, we're told about Yom Kippur, the the great day of atonement. And on this great day of atonement, the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one time. And he would do all these washings and purification rites and baptisms of sorts. And he would have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies and there were two separate animal sacrifices. They would choose which animal was gonna be sacrificed and which animal would become the scapegoat. You ever heard of a scapegoat? A scapegoat comes right here from Leviticus chapter 16. That's where the idea comes from. And here's what would happen. They would literally like choose some straws. I can't remember exactly. They would, um, like draw straws. And then one would go for the sacrifice. And what they would do is they would kill that animal, take the blood, take it into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in one time a year. He'd go in and he'd sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice in the Holy of Holies and purify the, where, the Ark of the Covenant, the judgment seat of God. In other words, that blood sacrifice was to represent the, the blood removing the sin of the people. It was purifying them. It was washing them clean. Now, the other thing that was fascinating is that scapegoat, what they would do is they would put their hand over its head and pronounce the entire sins of Israel that hadn't been sacrificed for yet or hadn't been forgiven yet over that goat, and they would send it out into the wilderness. And what happened over time is as these Sabbath laws became more rigid, and you could only say walk a mile a day or a quarter mile a day or whatever it is, they would set up little booths every, whatever the distance was, quarter mile, and they would walk the goat out. The person who walked it out would stop, stay at that booth for the night, hand it off to the next person, who would walk out to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. When it finally got out to the distance it was supposed to, they would take it to an edge and kick the goat over the cliff and it would fall to its death. And they had to watch and make sure that it died because they didn't want their sin coming back. That is the big deal. And what's really crazy is when they would pronounce which animal was going to be which, they would take this scarlet and tie it over top of it, this thread, sorry. And it was a scarlet thread. It was a red colored thread. And what happened is for years, they would then take a thread and tie it to the gates. So as the goat with the sins pronounced over it left and went out into the wilderness, and then it got way out where it was gonna be kicked off the cliff, way out to that place, History says, and we can't, I can't prove it to you. I got no video, I got no pictures, but it's written down and recorded that year after year after year after year on Yom Kippur, all of a sudden the red scarlet thread would miraculously turn white. And somewhere around 30 AD, it stopped. And the rabbis write about this, not the Christians. For reasons they can't explain, somewhere in that first century, between 300 and 100, it stops. Now, Christians have been saying for years, it's because the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, came. And his blood both purifies us from all unrighteousness, but also his blood takes our sin away. David is looking forward to his sin being removed finally and forever. That's why he goes on in verse 51, and, or chapter 51, verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from
from my sins, blot out all my iniquity. Take it all away. There's a passage again, I think it's in Isaiah, and it talks about God throwing our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. Or another passage says, as far as the east is from the west. And if I'm not mistaken, this would be the north and the south. So just to be clear, the whole idea is not, we know the planet is round. It's not like if my sin goes east and my other sin goes west, that they run into each other on the other side of the world, whatever sad country that is. The whole idea here is if I throw it this way and I throw it this way, they'll never touch again. They'll just keep going. But here's the thing, God can never forget my sin. If God forget, forgot anything, he wouldn't be God. He has to know all things at all times. So what does it mean when it throws into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west? What it means is when he looks at me, he no longer sees my sin. Instead, what he sees is my savior and his sacrifice. I have a story from a friend. Um, I told him I wouldn't say his name and he got to write his own story. So this is his words. said, I want to share my story to encourage anyone else who may feel alone, neglected, too far gone, helpless, hopeless, or whatever it may be that separates them from the true understanding of what God did for all of us on the cross through his own son. I was brought up in a home that went to church twice every Sunday and again on Wednesday nights. I knew the stories of the Bible, who Jesus was, and was often involved in church activities, camps, and mission trips. From the outside, Everything looked like the picture-perfect Christian life. I now realize, although I was going through the motions, my childhood was far from the way God intended love to be. I often wondered if this was all my life would be. I'd get up, I'd go to school or work, visit church on Sundays, keep myself out of trouble as much as possible, then someday pass away and be in heaven. The void I felt in my life that I couldn't fulfill led me to many different things that took me further away from my relationship with God. My parents divorced when I was in high school, And that was when the feelings of being alone and having no one there for me really started to sink in. My friend circle changed. I went to church less and I began to start a life that would mimic the prodigal son. I began to drink, party, and have relationships that were not God-honoring. When those did not fill the hole in my life, I began to get engrossed in a lustful sin struggle with pornography that grabbed me stronger than I could admit. I never knew how to overcome the struggle as most men don't. I brought this into my marriage and it was a problem that remained somewhat secretly hidden. I was caught in this battle for years before it came to light after being married. There were so many different side effects because of my secret sin. My wife and I would argue over small things. I felt anger, sadness, resentment, worthless, helpless, alone, sleepless nights, and the list goes on. Because of these feelings, I would go back to my lustful fulfillment. It was a constant spiral that would not stop, go away, or even start to improve on its own by myself. I can't explain in the words the depth of my sorrow, despair, hurt, and even the thoughts of how I got this far. My sin struggle would go in cycles. I thought I could handle it on my own by sheer willpower and leave God out of it. How foolish that was. I prayed at times for God to take it away, but what I was really looking for was a change of habits rather than a change of heart. As I mentioned before, I was taught how to do things as a child that make it appear I'm leading a life that loves God. I attended church and often volunteered for things. I had a clean mouth. I no longer drink, etc. What I soon found out was that my works-based faith was not getting me where God wanted me. As I began to slowly waste away inside, I often thought what my family's life would be like. 
without me? Could my wife be happier with someone else? Could my kids have a better role model than their fake dad? Is my life worth anything? I am almost positive I was in a state of depression without the clinical diagnosis. I had, at this point, lost a drive to go on or thrive and be the man that I needed to be. This is when I finally started to pray that God would reveal my sin to my wife and bring it to light in any way he saw fit. Shortly after my prayer, a week to be exact, God showed me how strong he really is. He answered that prayer. Due to the prompting that God laid on my wife's heart, she confronted me with her concerns and I confessed my sin struggle to her. I don't know what overcame me in that moment when I was finally able to come clean, but it was a long and exhausting conversation that allowed me to be honest with the depths of my struggle. In that moment, a huge weight lifted, but did not completely release the shame I had inside. The release of my shame is coming as I have sought counsel and deeper friendships through the body of Christ and the men in my life. These men love me for who I am and where I'm headed. They've played a tremendous role in my life as I continue to navigate each step they make me feel accepted and loved regardless of what I've done. I have found that for me to grow, I need to be bolder in my pursuit of relationships amongst the believers. I have found there's accountability, support, encouragement, checking in prayers, and so much more. After admitting, confessing, and truly repenting of my sins, I've been able to see what God has in store for me. Allowing God to unwrap me, which is not easy, is showing me why I had become who I was. Because of this, I have been able to change many things in my life. I feel empowered, cherished, accepted, and very full of hope. I am now experiencing deeper intimacy with God, a connection with my wife that brings joy like we've never experienced before, and I'm learning to love my kids like God loves me. Some days are very difficult as we go through the healing process. I still have many things to address and work through, but by the grace of God, he will give me many more days to continue the sanctification process. Some of the things God has shown me since I've repented are the power of prayer, the need for community, and the recognition of who God is and what he is capable of. My story is still being written, but it is definitely not over. Can we just stop and say thank you? Man, what a powerful testimony. What a testimony to the church too. Look, I, I wanna wrap up Psalm 51, but before I do, I just wanna encourage you first of all, look, I don't know what you're dealing with. But the point of the church is to be the place, it's supposed to be a hospital for sinners, right? Sick people come and get healing and help. It's not supposed to be a gathering of um, those who are healthy and well. That doesn't mean you never get better and you never grow beyond it. Of course you do. I sure hope you stop repeating the same pattern of behavior. But this is the place where we could talk about it and be open and be honest and not be judged or condemned. And if that's not true, then I want to know about it. The elders want to know about it. The staff want to know about it so we can address it where the problem is. Let me just, a couple more things in Psalm 51. We won't get to finish at all, but I want to show you this next part. In Psalm 51, verse 10, David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. First of all, David does not have the Holy Spirit like we have. But I love this prayer because in essence, David is saying what we sang. David is saying, God, nothing else, nothing else will do. I just want you. You could take the kingdom you could take my family. You could take whatever it is you need to take, but please don't take 
you. Whatever it is, do not let me lose you. In fact, not only don't take you, but God, change my heart. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me that not only would I be sensitive to your ways, but that I would actually listen and obey them. That's why I would say, this is a little takeaway, our greatest loss is a severed relationship with God. That's why we have to take sin so very seriously. I'm out of time because I really want to sing that song one more time. But I'm going to close with this. We have a little prayer card at the counter out there. And uh, maybe if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe today's the day for you to go by the Connect Hub and just say, look, I want to know more about a God who loves me like that. Just have a conversation with them. That's it. It just begins with a thought. We've had two baptisms today. They were young people. I think it's easier for young people because they're so used to getting caught by their parents anyway that they don't have a problem like admitting that they're wrong. But then as we get older, we get more afraid of what we'll lose and we get less afraid of losing Christ, of being separated from him. And he stands with his arms open going, come on, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So I just want you to take this prayer and every day for the next week, just pray it. But make it your own. These are my words. You make this your own. Here we go. Oh my God, I cry out to you for forgiveness. I know that you don't require more sacrifice or more serving or even more generosity as a way to make up for my sins. You desire a broken and contrite heart. That's at the end of Psalm 51 that I didn't have time for. And you promise never to ignore us when we bring that to you. In light of your abundant mercy and grace, I ask you to forgive the following. I just want you to take a few minutes. Whatever it is, he already knows. He's been watching you since you were in the womb of your mama. Every day of your life, he knows. So there's nothing hidden from him. So why hide it from him? Then when that little moment is over, now, my God, restore a right spirit within me. I believe you have forgiven me. Help me to accept your forgiveness and to live differently because of your refreshing grace. And then just end it with in Jesus' name. What I want to do now is I want to take us into communion. So if you would, pull out your communion cups. And if you forgot one, it's okay to grab one or just wait. And if you're visiting with us or you're newer to this, you may not know this, but on top, you kind of have to separate and pull back the paper. There's a little bread in there. And this bread represents the body of Jesus. And the bread, in many ways, represents that Old Testament scapegoat. Remember when Jesus was crucified, he was taken outside the city. I tell you this all the time, nothing that happens in the Bible on accident. He's taken outside the city because he becomes our real living scapegoat. So when we confess to him, that's why John says at 1 John, he is faithful and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. And when God forgives, he throws it as far as the east is from the west. This bread, as you are about to take it, when you take it, remember this is Jesus removing your sin. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences. It just means that God, in his view of you, you are cleansed. And that's really the blood, which is what this little juice at the bottom represents. It's not real blood, it's grape juice. 
It represents the blood of Jesus, which purifies us from all unrighteousness, like the other animal that was sacrificed, whose blood was sacrificed behind the curtain. And what's powerful is Hebrews, I think it's in chapter nine, says, Jesus is our great high priest who allows us to approach the throne of grace with confidence that in our hour of need, our prayers will be heard. Right now, I just want you to come into the presence of your Holy Father because Jesus tore the temple veil in two. You can enter into the throne room of conf- with confidence. And God wants you to sit up, climb up in his lap. Picture that. I know you might be an adult man. And it feels weird to climb up in, in God's lap. His lap is way bigger than any man you're picturing in your head. Picture yourself climbing up into the lap of a heavenly father. Picture yourself as an innocent child. And you're just bringing everything to him and going, God, I don't know how to fix this. Help and trust that he is here in this moment. Let me say a quick prayer. Oh my God. There's so much truth and weight to what we just talked about. Would you meet us right here, right now, right here, and help us to accept that you are not only purifying and washing away your sins, but you are also removing them from us, and that you are truly for us and with us. Right now, we are with you. We are in your presence. We're sitting in Dad's lap. And that's a good place to be. We love you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life and spirit. Thank you for speaking to us now. In Jesus' name.